As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, hello and welcome. It's a strange time of year, isn't it? But we're here regardless. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And at the moment, we're looking back at some of our favourite moments from our relatively new late afternoon show here on Times Radio, which goes out, Fee. It goes out uh, Monday to Thursday between three and five. So if that's when your afternoon is being a bit late, that's when you can tune in to us. We'll be there. So far this week, you'll have heard our conversations with Titan of Comedy, Michael Palin. We've had the supersonic astronaut. Tim Peake, amongst many others. First, though, here's our conversation with the journalist and writer Elizabeth Day. Watching Liz Truss yesterday, Fee and I felt something approaching sympathy, and I don't think sympathy is great if you start to feel it for a politician, mm. certainly not for a leader of a free country. When she was sitting on the green leather in the Mm. House of Commons when she came into that chamber her body language could not have been more different to the kind of rumbunctious bravura Liz Truss that we'd seen a couple of days before and she Mm. just looked haunted. She she really did look look terrible. Is that a woman who's dealing well with a massive failure? (laughs) I would say no. I think that there's a lot going on here. I think that the broader failure is one of our political system, which we can get into another time. But that is a failure in the sense that she got elected to a role that arguably she wasn't ready for. And also that our system is so combative rather than collaborative. So even when you do something so disastrous you have to front it out. There's this sense that you have to front it out and you can't possibly admit to having make, make, made mistakes. And even when she did offer a sort of half-hearted apology yesterday in a TV interview, I felt that it was quite a sort of passively expressed apology. It was sort of, um, I objectively feel one could be sorry if one if someone else had made mistakes. It was sort of that tenor. Okay. And yeah. I think the first step to dealing with failure and to learning from it is to have self-awareness of what's gone wrong. But are we still at a stage where we expect more from women in roles like that? Boris Johnson, I can't Mm. remember, did he ever say sorry? I think you're totally right that we do expect more from women. And uh, it's, it's a much harder battle to win because if you say sorry too much, then you might be accused of being overly emotive. And you're right that Boris Johnson just had this immense bravado that some people bizarrely found appealing. But he did say sorry, didn't he? He offered one apology during Partygate at the beginning that was much criticised because I think people didn't feel it had authenticity behind it. Okay. And then another apology where people noted a, a proper sense of 
contrition. But so that two was sorries, he said. Quite far, quite far down uh, the road, I think. But he has said sorry. He was also famously sent to Liverpool to say sorry, wasn't he? Uh, which I'm not sure back in the day I'm was not sure an that any effective of us apology. in that city were all that... <laughs> Accepted um, it. <laughs> ever, ever entirely come to terms with him. But anyway. I've actually interviewed Liz Truss yeah. twice. Oh, go on. Once, way back when she was, I think she was a backbencher, but she was not one of the new influx of Tory MPs. And I interviewed her for The Observer, left-leaning newspaper. And I, and I really liked her. And she seemed quite fizzy and interesting. And then the second time I interviewed her was when she was being touted as a successor to Theresa May. Remember Theresa May? Yeah. Well, some people say she might be making a comeback. Stand by for more later. Carry on. <laughs> it says a lot that I, I feel relieved at that prospect. Well. <laughs> um, but I interviewed her the second time when she was being touted as a possible prime ministerial contender the first time around. And I found it harder to warm to her not because she was in any way unpleasant, but because she lacked a fundamental quality that makes me warm to people, which is introspection. And I think in order to be self-aware, you need to have introspection. And I don't know whether she was just very good at pretending she didn't have it for the purposes of a newspaper interview. But I remember there was a couple of things. I, I asked her when the last time she cried was, classic journalist question. She said, oh, probably a film or something. And then she told me the story of how she met her husband and they went ice skating together and uh, she fell over and I went gushily, oh, you fell at his feet. And she said, yes, I've always enjoyed winter sports. (laughs) And it was quite hard to get a chink of humour out of her. I'm with Liz here. I think you were just trying to inject a saccharine note of journo pap. And she just wasn't going for it. <laughs> a saccharine note of journo pap. Is that your second album? <laughs> We're in conversation with our big guest of the afternoon, Elizabeth Day, podcaster, novelist and writer of non-fiction. And you're going to write something next year, you're writing it now, mm. about friendship. Now, yes. What inspired this? This is non-fiction. It's non-fiction. First of all, I love being called a big guest. Thank you very much. I'm going you're to put huge. that in my Twitter bio. You're huge. <laughs> um, it's non-fiction and it's a book called Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict. And it's about my journey through friendship. And what prompted it was the pandemic, to be fair. And I think actually a lot of people underwent re-evaluations of their friendships during that time because overnight our diaries cleared out and either we felt extremely lonely or we felt the blessed relief of having Mm -hmm. a few evenings in. Mm -hmm. And it was really about assessing where I'd gone wrong with friendships and how I'd said yes to too many encounters that should have just stopped at being friendly rather than making them into bona fide friends. And then how sometimes you get overwhelmed. There's a saturation point that comes from more and more connections. And because friendship isn't something that socially we're allowed to fail at, it's seen as a failure if a friendship ends. Whereas romantic relationships, part and parcel of that is that you'll probably have a few before you find someone that you want to settle down with. And so I realised that there wasn't a language to express some of the things that I was feeling and that I knew a lot of my closest friends were also feeling. And Friendaholic is an attempt to explore my addiction to friendship and also to provide a language of it. Okay. do you think you are a good friend? I think I'm a good friend in certain respects. And this is something that I've had to be really clear eyed and honest about in the book. I think I'm a bad friend in the sense that I'm extremely conflict avoidant. I care too much what other people might think of me and that makes me cowardly and so sometimes I haven't faced up to the ends of friendships and I haven't said 
in black and white or I haven't spoken to someone about why I feel our friendship is ending and I have just fallen out of their lives, which might be called ghosting. And I feel really bad about that. But I think part of the reason that is the case is because there is a lack of vocabulary and because we all feel ashamed if a friendship has in some way gone awry. And what I realised during the writing of the book is that friendships are not failures just because they end. They can have an incredibly meaningful impact on your life forever, even if they're not an active daily part of it. It's a bit like volcanoes. Volcanoes can be dormant, but they completely shape the landscape around them. And so I think I'm a good friend in that respect, in that I've realised that. And I think of my former friends with love. And I think I am relatively funny. I mean, maybe you two could disabuse me of that notion. Just and I, on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm present. Like, if you need me, I will be there. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, that's the, the ultimate test, isn't it? I mm. mean, I, I honestly think I have, there are people I know I could ring at three o'clock in the morning. And actually, isn't that what do you what would you regard as the biggest test of a friendship? Well, well, so I've got this test which I inherited actually from somebody else, which is the M4 friend. Would you, when you're driving on your way to a really lovely weekend on the M4, if you got a phone call from somebody, would you just turn around and go back to help them? Would you mm. take the call in the first place and would you ruin your own weekend? If it was safe mm. to take it, I would. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, obviously not a U-turn on the M4 uh, using the uh, the necessary slip roads, etc. But it's that kind of thing, isn't it? To yeah. be able to know that you would interrupt your own life, whatever you're doing, to go and help somebody else out and stay with them until they were okay. Yeah. And I, I sometimes think as women, and m- men who are listening can really correct me about this, but... I think we have such an expectation of those kind of friendships and finding lots of them that sometimes we're not looking, we're not, we're, we're not hard enough with ourselves to kind mm. of go, actually, I can only have two of those people across a whole lifetime. I can't yes. expect everybody to become that or for me to become that to them. I don't know whether men do the same thing. I think we collect friendship in a, in a different way. Well, I think that goes into that notion of shame and failure because women, and this is a huge generalisation and therefore I'm sure inaccurate, but women, generally speaking, are meant to be friendly. They're meant to be pleasant and pliable and nice. And we're meant to be able to foster that sort of small talk and that communication at the school gates. And therefore it feels humiliating and shameful if we don't carry on friendships lifelong. And you're totally right that that's completely impractical. And there's a a very famous scientist in this field called Robin Dunbar, who I'm sure you've heard of, who developed Dunbar's number, which is about how many friends we can actually sustain. We'll certainly pretend we've heard of Robin. I'll be honest and say no. (laughs) (laughs) But he said this thing, he developed his theory and and, uh, evolved it somewhat. He developed something called friendship layers. And in your innermost layer, you can have five people who are like the M4 people. It's a very privileged road to choose. There are um, other motorways do exist. Um, But you have five of them. And if you fall in love and you have a long-term romantic relationship or you have children, that will cost you two of those other relationships, which I thought was fascinating. And it's just, at the end of the day, it's just about how much time we actually have and time is a finite resource. And... That's Yeah. And the other thing that I realised about friendship is that we all have different ways of measuring it. So the M4 test is a great one. For me, my primary friendship metric is generosity of spirit. If someone thinks of me well, even if I don't get in touch with them all the time, even if I'm terrible on the phone, if they're thinking of me well and they know that I'm thinking of 
them well. That for me is true friendship and we can pick up where we left off. Whereas some people really need the kind of face-to-face contact and their metric of friendship is time. So it's really, and some, it will be shared hobbies and book club. So it's really a question of finding out what your metric is. Can we talk a little bit about the book you're writing for young people? I think, <laughs> I'm sure you have already written it. This is Philosophy for yeah. Teens. Um, is this out now or is that the new year as well? That's coming out in January. January, a time when we all turn over a new leaf. <laughs> well, uh, exactly, we shouldn't but feel also, the pressure of that. A time when we have a lot of book tokens. That's also <laughs> true. I don't think the book token really exists anymore, does it? Anyway, um, I was just thinking how I often feel how grateful I am not to be 14 frankly. oh me too um, presumably is that is that where you come from in terms of absolutely the toughness of it yeah so philosophy is a book that I wrote for adults which was a distillation of seven failure principles that I came up with from having done four years now of the how to fail podcast and it's a reworking of that specifically for the teenage market because I have three teenage stepchildren and so I get a bird's eye view on how monumentally difficult it is to be an adolescent in today's society because not only are they the most tested generation we've ever had in terms of exams but there is the inordinate pressure of peer groups on social media and feeling like you have to be living your best life and comparing yourself to gym girls or boys on TikTok. Mm. That's a huge amount that I never had to deal with and I'm so grateful for and so really this is meant to be an empowering warm and practical guide as to how failures don't have to define you, but they can actually just be useful data acquisition for the future about who you really are. Right. And you don't feel, you shouldn't feel pressure to have this. I mean, Instagram has its uses. I mean, I've bought a number of pairs of elasticated trousers that have been offered to me via that. The trousers I'm wearing now were advertised to me on Instagram. Were they? (laughs) And they are elasticated waists. (laughs) Elizabeth, I would not have known, but thank you. But it's even I, I mean, I'm a reasonably intelligent, mature woman. I get so exercised by the great time everybody else appears to be having on Instagram. And then I'll speak to the same person the next day. And it turns out their holiday was rubbish. Yeah. And they hadn't spoken to their husband for three days of it. But don't you think it's really interesting what Elizabeth's done with the How to Fail podcast? Because it's put another horse in the race, hasn't it? Because we know that we've got all of that perfection search going on. And we're really hard on ourselves when we look at all of that. But your podcast people love because it's the flip side of that. So we are managing to, you know, to ride different horses. It's not all going to hell in the handcart. You just have to choose something different. We are capable of making that choice. Definitely. And I think the important thing to remember when you're scrolling through social media is that you are comparing your insides to everyone else's outsides. So you, we know what neurotic messes we are inside our own messy heads, but we can't possibly fathom that that person posting about her yoga retreat in Ibiza is also feeling like that because we only have her outside projection to go on. And that's been a very useful thing for me to remember as well, plus the airplane mode function on your phone. <laughs> yeah, just switch it off. Oh, it hadn't occurred to me. You can put that on any time. Any time, Jane. such a rule follower. I thought you could only put it on on airplanes. <laughs> You're absolutely joking me. No, I'm not. Are you joking? No, what? Jane, that's the sweetest, did purest I, thing I've ever heard. Out loud? <laughs> <laughs> what a great title for a book. I what did you think was going to happen if you put it on, on during the day? No, the thought, airplane mode police would come and yes, arrest I thought, you. I thought they would. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like a thing that could only be a plus. So anyway. what have you been using when you just don't want your phone to, <laughs> yeah, to like ring? This explains why my phone pings all night because I've got a student getting into an Uber at 10 to 4. Jane, I'm not surprised you're tired. No, this is my gift to you. 
It's an extraordinary revelation. Well, I've learned something today. This is going to make headlines. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the best of Jane and Fee, where we're mulling over some of our favourite conversations from the last couple of months. So Jamie Oliver is our big guest this afternoon, joining us from the Cheltenham Literature Festival, which might immediately alert you to the fact that he's got a book out. It's called One, and it's all about how to cook using just one pot or tray or dish. We have more than one topic to discuss, though, and I apologise for that link. It is only Monday. His recent Eaton Mess campaign, the pressures on the restaurant trade, what he calls the bad divorce of Brexit, the ups and downs of fame and fortune, and possibly being part of the anti-growth coalition. The Prime Minister, Liz Truss, seemed to suggest he might be when she took down those campaigning against the buy one, get one free deals in her speech to the Tory party conference last week. Jamie has been vociferous opponent on the government's U-turn on its anti-obesity strategy, which had included a curb on unhealthy bog-offs. More of all of that in the next half an hour. But hello, Jamie. Morning, afternoon. Afternoon. No, it's Sorry. You've done so many interviews <laughs> you don't know. I was listening to your are. show, kind of engrossed in what I'm going to talk about. It's <laughs> very kind of you, Jamie. So the idea behind one, I mean, I almost feel a fool for asking you to explain it because it's a kind of self-explanatory title, but you tell us in your own words. Oh, it's pretty simple. I mean, I tried to uh, look at the way that people are... Shopping, consuming, living, um, the things they're juggling and try and write my most user-friendly cookbook. So ultimately it's one, mainly not just because of the one cooking vessel, a pan, but um, our hatred of washing up, um, keeping the ingredients low, you know, sort of quick preparations uh, and just trying really to create a cookbook that's relevant to now. And, um, you know, contrary to what maybe lots of people think, uh, things change quite a lot quite quickly. So, um, you know, uh, the way we're shopping and living has really changed as well since, it's, since COVID. So I'm just trying to stay useful 
I yeah. guess, is, is the way I'm trying to do it. Would you agree that there's something just really weird going on in the world of food at the moment, where there's an enormous gap between the kind of the, the top, which is the Instagrammable food with the gold leaf, and maybe even the kimchi and the kombucha and the £75,000 burgers or whatever it is, and then the real, real hard need to understand how you can make a shopping basket lasts a whole week to feed a family. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in any trade, whether it's art or music, there's, there's always extremes. And, and to a degree, social media allows that to sort of search and, and track more. Um, but and, and people follow people for different reasons, of course. But um, I mean, ultimately... Um, we are animals of habit. Our basket doesn't really change much, about 4% every week. Um, we pretty much buy the same thing this week as we did a month ago and the month before that. So um, what we say and what we do are very different things. And um, the only truth actually in the whole food industry is basket data. So um, in a weird sort of way, for me, when I'm writing this kind of book, because you know, obviously different books do different things, but um, I, try, I try to write recipes that had the ingredients that you normally buy most of the time anyway. So I'm just trying to constantly take away reasons to not cook and just pick up the phone and get a takeaway. Mm. So you'll know all of the criticism that has been uh, thrown at you in the past. Did you feel that when Liz Truss made that comment at the Tory party conference, she was taking a direct pop at you with the buy one, get one freeze? Not really, no. I think I think the newspaper decided to um, put me in there to make it a little bit more of a conversation piece. But I think um, I think Liz's strategy is to sort of take away, you know, anything that you know involves uh, look, when you're trying to progress public health and and look at the masses and try and um, uh, they as they were called level up. Uh, it involves lots of different specific things that might help people and it involves having to fight the food industry and lobbyists um so i think she doesn't want any stress of that at the moment because that's like too much work so um you know i think that's um that's pretty much why it was brought up but i mean look i've been doing it a long time so i'm kind of used to you know (laughs) i think it's the seventh prime minister that i've worked through 13th head of education um so it i think i have to take a long view at it um, and she didn't meet, mention me specifically, but, you know, for, for myself and a lot of the, um, I guess, uh, charities and NGOs that fight for, for public health, um, you know, we, we stand together always. But um, it's a funny time right now. And um, obviously, you have to react to what is relevant and useful now. And certainly that's cost of living and the cost of ingredients. And, and for sure, cooking can definitely help you if you can cook and if you have access to cook Mm. um so you know never in my career have we ever um i've I've always costed recipes for the last maybe 10 years just to make sure the books are roughly within the sort of you know a mixture of all the prices that look normal um but now we're costing energy 12 pence for this 10 pence for that five pence for that so um i never thought i'd ever be doing that so that's just a a showing of the times i guess is there ever an argument though jamie for just pressing pause on something uh like the buy one get one free which i know is is, uh you're only critical of that when it's unhealthy food but if you are a mum or a dad who who is really really struggling to make ends meet you want to buy something that your kids are just going to eat you haven't got the luxury of trying to get them to eat broccoli three times or whatever it is, you just need them to have a full stomach, don't you? So if you're talking about just putting these things off while we get through a crisis point... Very very possibly. It was never... Both the press and and, uh, 
the businesses didn't like that one, um, even though the science and the data proved that they made you spend more, eat more and waste more. But all I would say to you is, do you want to have a pizza for 60 pence or two for £1.50? Yeah, that's that's it's a mechanic. So for, for, look, it's not it's not me that's inventing. It's a, it's a very specific mechanic that people don't want to understand. <laughs> so what people want is cheaper food, not cheaper deals making you want to. That's the point of it. So, I mean, look, so much so that the biggest supermarket in the country, Tesco, haven't been doing this mechanic for quite some time now. And, and as they represent the people, that's probably because they have it in the interest of the people to have better prices on the whole, not not sort of specific mechanics that are being shown to lead people the wrong direction and make them ultimately uh, you know, less healthy, less well off and um, waste more. So I think it's just something that the media has struggled to articulate because it's not a one-liner. Do you think, Jamie, that in order to improve public health, uh, someone, and the Prime Minister has said she is prepared to be unpopular, but she doesn't want to be unpopular on this front, someone has got to say uncomfortable things about the way perhaps too many of us eat, what we eat, the amount we eat. And that's kind Um, of what you've been trying to do, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think for myself personally, when I did school dinners campaign... um, uh, you cannot do that job properly and not be emotionally moved by the free school lunch kids and what that represents. And um, currently there are 800,000 kids in this country between the free school lunch kids and um, universal credit. So just to give you some context on that, to get a free school lunch in Britain today, your family has to earn per household just over uh, less than seven grand, right? Annually. That's all. Yeah. So that's how hard up they are. That's how vulnerable they are. And there's an 800,000 p- kid child gap between that and, um, and universal credit. And, and we've known for a long time and been talking about and can campaigning for a long time. I'm talking about five years since its creation, um, that this is an unfair gap. And, and, and I guess if, if, if you spoke to any teacher or any uh, lunch lady or manager, um, this is where you're starting to hear narrative now about kids coming to school starving. Uh, it's always happened in, in pockets. Uh, and, and for any democracy that any of us could respect, like we always want to catch the most vulnerable. So free lunches do that, but it's not enough. It's not wide enough. And, and, and certainly now more than ever with everything that's going on, that's what we're campaigning so for currently. There is no question in your mind that some people need proper, clear messages about how to cook and what to cook. Well, look, if we're talking about truth in food, this is something that's... Look, the biggest, the biggest industry on the planet is food. Uh, it's, 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 it's pretty tough out there. The con- you know, just getting truth, you know, whether it's... You know, we, haven't, we haven't even agreed on colour-coded front-of-pack labelling to help busy parents yet. Why? Because they don't want you to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at... I mean, if you, I mean, even if you look at, say, the sugary drinks tax, you know... The company's made more money by reformulating. It's the biggest sugar reformulation ever in global history. And what it did was not just get them to reformulate their products, but widen their portfolio, which in turn gave the public more choice, which in turn made their businesses more sustainable, which in turn made them more profitable. So this, this narrative that doing good is not good business is actually incorrect. And for what I can gather, wrong. So what we need to do as a nation and as a government, is make sure the people that are geeky and clever and care about public health and communications and labelling and truth and and, and ingredients and things that should be banned because they're toxic, uh, from pesticides to additives, you know, 
you want that to happen. You want your child to be in the presence of that nation. What you don't want is a passive uh, uh, government that keep rattling on about nanny states when kids need a good nanny in their life. And, and when you go up in an aeroplane and you're up there at 36,000 feet, you want regulations and controls in place to make sure the rivets don't pop and you don't fall out the sky. And it's exactly the same with the three meals you have a day. Thank you for answering all our political questions, Jamie. I think you're both welcome. Jane and I can hear in your voice a sense of real fed-upness. Uh, I don't know whether yeah. that's a technical term. Well, look, it's, it's, it's just... It's just um, Is it Cheltenham? I have ha- I've it? had the... I'm at Cheltenham doing the Literary Festival. I haven't been here for about a decade. It's all very lovely down here. Um, and I've done my, uh, my gig. And, and, um, and look, like from one side, I'm my, part of my job is jazz hands and cooking and chop and chat shows. And, but the, I think over the, you know, I, I, the way I look at my job is I work for the public. And, you know, buying a cookbook, which is essentially my living, it's not a like, it's not a view. It's like a proper vote. You even have to pay for it. And that responsibility of, of talk, my, I mean, a lot of the things I've campaigned for over the years isn't things that I've necessarily come up with or even driven. It's the public that have asked me to talk about the things that they're worried about and they care about. So it's an incredible ball and chain that I have to wear. Um, and I do take it seriously. I love it. And it sort of is the best and worst thing that I do. But not yet have we ever seen a government that has put child health. When have you ever seen a government put child health first on any election? And um, so for me, I'm just one of many charities and NGOs around the country that spend hours every week looking at public health data and spend hours looking at how, um, you know, working with, you know, people like Trestle Trust and and food banks and, and, and looking at what do people need and how bad is bad. So... I think we're all quite aware by now that things yeah. are quite bad, but you do want a government that, take, that, that takes this thing seriously. Shall we do some of the jazz hand stuff? It's jazz out, away. Uh, it's turned out to be quite a bright, sunshiny day uh, here in London town, but it was very gloomy this morning, Jamie. Yes, it was. And I was flicking through your recipe book and I came upon Pick Me Up Chili Fried Eggs. Uh, which I can make according Trust to you. you. That's the only hangover cure that I wrote <laughs> in the book. <laughs> and I, you've been magnetised to I it. I do not have a hangover. <laughs> this is our first day on the job. Don't be so uh, mean. I don't. Yeah, but it, it, it genuinely was the hangover cure. That's why I wrote that recipe. But um, yeah, yes. go for it. Okay. Do you still like cooking? So when you oh wake up God, on yeah. a miserable Monday morning, isn't there a bit of you that just, <laughs> that just thinks I'll deliver you tonight? I don't want to have to rare. cook. Very rare. I, hardly ever. And I, I just think, look, it's... It's the one thing that is like has given me a living. It's my safe place. I use it to to invigorate me. I use it to cuddle, you know, to food to cuddle me. I use it for therapy. I think food can be anything you want it to be, and it's your choice to make sure you use it in the right way to suit you and your life. And I love it. I, I travelled the world and seen, you know, similar like similar families with similar jobs, but reacting and living in completely different ways with food and especially now you know when we're talking about cost of living and stuff like that it's like I've got so many years behind me where I've I've seen similar cha- challenges in different countries and seen how food can really help and lift and even even on tight budgets so I mean I guess the reality I mean for, for a lot of people now we don't learn to cook at home so much uh, or at school so um, you know it makes my job quite a strange one but ultimately I think Cooking is incredible mm. life skill and superpower. How old are you now, Jamie Oliver? Oh, you bless you for that. Forty-seven. Thank you very 47. much. Forty-seven. You're looking. <laughs> you're looking good on it. Uh, thank you. If you were to go back and do it all over again, are the yes. bits of it you'd do differently? God, 
I mean, I, I, th- I think no. It's it's been an extraordinary honour and privilege to surf this world in the public eye. I think like the best stuff has been the hardest stuff and the most painful stuff. And I think, dare I say it, um, and and I've and I've really been on a j- personal journey, you know, trying to put meat meat around the bones of what I was back then, um, coming out of school and the sort of experiences that I had at school, um, which, where I struggled quite a lot, and um, having worked with thousands and thousands of people in teams, I just feel like I'm getting, I'm, I'm you know, feeling quite rounded at the moment, just as a person and as, as an employer, and feel like I've got a good 10 years to give before I'm knackered. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> 10. I, I feel like, it, you know, I do, I do. And there's good work to be done, and, you know... Um, you know, it is all part of the same noise. I mean, I, I use TV and publishing as a lever and a tactic to try and empower people to buy stuff, do stuff to it, and create beautiful meals and hopefully memories. Um, but as from our earlier conversation, like, people forget that the biggest business on the planet, bigger than arms, bigger than oil, bigger than city trading, is food. And therefore, why should we not presume that there's many, many powers out there trying to, you know, empower, market you into living a certain way. And, and, and you know, I think that's where, where it gets really interesting. So it's quite a, a big job remit. Yeah. <laughs> but I love it. I, I still love it. And, and, um, and I'm still trying to make myself learn new things. Now, you've been listening to Off Air. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. You can listen to us on the free Times Radio app or download every episode from wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you like what you've heard, then you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.